You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. In May of 1498, explorer John Cabot set sail from Bristol, England with five ships. Cabot had gained renown the previous year when he had dared to head into the unknown northern Atlantic on a mission of discovery. He had returned after finding a new world, the first European since the Vikings to set foot in North America. One of the ships from Cabot's expedition would take anchorage in Ireland after suffering damage in a storm. The other four ships would push on. John Cabot and his fleet would never be heard from again. In today's episode of Explorers, we are going to take a look at the life of John Cabot, an Italian who sailed for the English crown during the early years of the Age of Discovery. We will examine Cabot's first attempts at exploration, including his journey to North America, and then ponder what may have happened to the man on his mysterious final voyage to the New World. The first thing we have to discuss about Cabot is his name. History has generally referred to him as John Cabot, but the man was actually Italian, and his real name is Giovanni Cabato. For the sake of the podcast, I am going to refer to him as John Cabot, as that's the name he went by when he made his mark as an explorer, and what history has generally remembered him by. The other thing I want to mention about Cabot is that there is precious little information about the man's life. His time as a public figure was relatively short, and he never really had anyone document his journeys. It means a lot of what we have about the man is a patchwork of bits and pieces of information, often gathered much later by dedicated Cabot scholars. This lack of primary source material means we are going to miss some of the rich detail that we have found in some of our other podcasts. But such is life. Sometimes you have lots and lots of great info. Other times we have to take what we have and do the best we can. So on with the show. John Cabot was born in Italy, likely Genoa, in about 1450. The exact year is not known. As noted, his given name was Giovanni Cabato. He was the son of Giulio Cabato. We do not know his mother's name. And he had a brother named Piero. Cabot's family moved to Venice, which was an independent republic, in approximately 1460. The family appears to have done well in the city. John would be accepted into the religious association of St. John the Evangelist in 1471, a prestigious organization that would have only accepted him if his family had been in high standing in the community. Cabot would become a Venetian citizen in 1476, which is an important distinction. Venice was one of the wealthiest cities in the world at the time, much of the wealth derived from the city's lucrative trade monopoly in the Middle East, and only a Venetian citizen could engage in such trade. And trade is what Cabot appears to have done during his younger years, although exactly what he did, we don't know. There are documents indicating that he traveled to places such as Crete, Syria, Lebanon, and Palestine. Cabot later asserted that he had gone to Mecca, but there is no proof of that. Cabot would get married in 1484, 
He and his wife, Mattia, would have three sons, Ludovico, Sebastian, and Sancto. In the 1480s, Cabot appears to have shifted professions. We know this because sources indicate that he became involved in housebuilding in Venice, and later jobs would be in the field of civil engineering. However, Cabot got into financial trouble in the late 1480s, and like all good debtors, he handled the problem by slipping out of town in the dead of night. Okay, we don't know how he left or when, but we do know that he did leave, and he left owing money. Cabot would head to Spain, specifically the city of Valencia. Documents have survived showing that his creditors tried to have him arrested for his evasion of his debts, although he appears to have avoided that fate. As noted, Cabot became a builder during this phase of his life. Documents indicate that he was involved in a proposal to improve the harbor while in Valencia, and later in Seville, he was contracted to build a stone bridge over the Guadalquivir River. And this takes us to 1495. Word of Christopher Columbus's voyage to the New World had swept through Europe, and men began to plot out how they could exploit the new land. It is not known exactly how Cabot got the idea of leading an expedition to the New World. Perhaps it was the fact that Christopher Columbus was a Genoese by birth, just like Cabot. And Cabot did have an interesting theory about ocean travel. Cabot's idea was that if a ship traveled west into the Atlantic from a northerly latitude, the voyage to the New World would be much shorter than what men like Columbus had done. And his logic is correct, as the longitudes are closer together the further north you go. It is a simple yet brilliant deduction. Also, let us be clear about something. Cabot and Columbus and all the other explorers of this time weren't thinking a New World when they set out across the ocean. They were thinking China and the Spice Islands in Asia. This was a way to make money, and a lot of it. Again, how and why Cabot came up with these ideas, we don't know. But logically, his time in the trade industry in Venice had something to do with it. He had likely dealt with spices, cloves, and nutmeg and cinnamon coming from the east. He knew their immense value and likely recognized that a westerly trade route to the Far East would be worth a fortune. Anyhow, it is believed that Cabot offered up his idea to the Spanish, as well as the Portuguese, but we will assume he was rejected, because next we find him headed to England in 1495. Cabot's destination was Bristol, the second largest port in England at this time. He likely selected Bristol because the city's merchants had been the only ones in England to have had a history of undertaking expeditions of exploration. But before Cabot could do anything, he needed a royal charter. One didn't just hop on a ship and set out exploring. For this, he would need cooperation from the English crown. This was important for several reasons. First, without a charter, he could not obtain any sort of monopoly or royalties for any trade routes he established or any lands he discovered. Second, there was this little thing called the Treaty of Tordesillas. In reality, the treaty was an extension of a recent papal bull. A papal bull is a sort of executive order from the Pope. The Treaty of Tordesillas essentially divided up the non-European world for Spain and Portugal. It made no mention of England or France or any other nation. Technically, any voyage west could be stepping on the toes of Spain or Portugal. In fact, the Spanish ambassador in England sent a warning to King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella, telling them of Cabot's presence in London, so no doubt the Spanish were watching these events as they unfolded. Cabot would need the support of Henry and the English crown if he was going to set off on a venture that might spark an international incident. If he had Henry in his corner, Cabot would know that someone had his back. So Cabot petitioned for his royal charter, or patent as it was called, his backers were likely the Bristol merchants and banks, because when Cabot was awarded the charter in 1496, it stated that all expeditions would be undertaken from Bristol. Regarding Cabot's charter, he would receive it on March 5, 1496. It was issued to him and his sons, who were still minors at the time. It said, quote, 
free authority, faculty, and power to sail to all parts, regions, and coasts of the eastern, western, and northern sea under our banners, flags, and ensigns, with five ships or vessels of whatever burden and quality they may be, and with so many and with such mariners and men as they may wish to take with them in the said ships, at their own proper costs and charges, to find, discover, and investigate whatsoever islands, countries, regions, or provinces of heathens and infidels, in whatsoever part of the world placed, which before the time were unknown to all Christians. End quote. So that's a lot, but it is Cabot's charter, and it gave him a monopoly on English voyages of exploration across the Atlantic Ocean. So next, he needed money. As stated, the likely financiers of the expedition would have been the merchants and bankers of Bristol, but it is possible Cabot drew some support from the Italian community in the city, as well as in London. Eventually, Cabot would raise his money, but for the first time out, it would be a modest affair, just enough for one single ship. It was probably a letdown, as his charter allowed him to outfit up to five vessels. As I mentioned at the start of the podcast, information about Cabot and his voyages are sketchy, and we know virtually nothing about this first affair. Almost everything we know about the voyage is a few lines in a letter written several years later by a Bristol merchant named John Day. The letter was from Day to Christopher Columbus, and here is what he wrote. Quote, Since your lordship wants information relating to the first voyage, here is what happened. He went on one ship, his crew confused him, he was short of supplies and ran into bad weather, and he decided to turn around. End quote. It is not a great description of things, and it is all we do have. We don't know when he left, when he returned, or how long the ship was at sea. But it was not uncommon for things to go wrong on an ocean voyage. To run into bad weather in the North Atlantic is not a shocker. As for supplies, that could mean just about anything. Perhaps the food spoiled, or they just ran out. We just don't know. The most interesting comment is the line, quote, his crew confused him, end quote. We can only speculate what this might mean. Perhaps it referred to Cabot's Italian nationality. Maybe he just didn't get along with the crew, or maybe it just refers to the language barrier that existed between the crew and the captain. Or perhaps the crew voted to turn back at some point, likely once they had endured bad weather and were low on supplies. We likely will never know. In the end, Cabot was back in Bristol with nothing to show for his first attempt. However, the failure of his trip doesn't seem to have dampened his investors' enthusiasm, because he would find himself preparing for a second voyage the following year, in 1497. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job or your title. As former corporate executives, we know firsthand that navigating corporate waters is not easy. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. I wish people would be able to understand in this corporate world that talking about things that don't work or identifying problems does not mean you're a problem. We'll dive deep into what happens behind fancy corporate doors or Zoom backgrounds or whatever. Are they really performance improvement plans or just a legal tool to get rid of people? (laughs) 
I know a lot of people have been saved because of them. We've created a show to help you navigate tricky corporate situations based on research and real life experience. I have really good advice. Don't go to a strip club with your team. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to the Ambie Award nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. So the new year brought a new attempt for Cabot. His charter with the English crown was still good, and he was able to procure one more ship for his voyage. The ship for his 1497 voyage was a small 50-ton vessel named Matthew. Cabot would have a crew of between 18 and 20 men. It is believed that one of the men on the ship was William Weston, a Bristol sailor, who would later lead an expedition to North America in 1499, perhaps the first Englishman to do so. Anyhow, the ship would be well-stocked with provisions for seven to eight months. Cabot would depart on his voyage in May of 1497. The exact date is not known, but one source puts it at May 2nd, Another places the departure date as later that month. Leaving Bristol, the expedition sailed past Ireland and into the Atlantic Ocean. It is at this point that I am sometimes astounded when I consider what Cabot was doing here. As we've talked about with men like Magellan and Leif Erikson, it is kind of crazy to just sail into nothingness. But that's what Cabot was doing. He was making a grand leap of faith that China, or something, was out there. As for Cabot's 1497 voyage, the logbook of his ship, Matthew, was lost so we know little about the day-to-day affairs of the captain and her crew. What we do know is that Cabot's little ship sighted the North American coast on June 24, 1497. Where Cabot and his men had arrived has long been disputed. Some people have argued Nova Scotia, others Maine, others Labrador, others Newfoundland. Most scholars and historians tend to point to the latter destination, Newfoundland. If you strike out west from Bristol in southwest England, a straight line pretty much goes right to the island, which is the easternmost point of North America. Thus, it's a logical landing place. But wherever it was, Cabot landed for only a short time. One report says, quote, He did not dare advance inland beyond the shooting distance of a crossbow. End quote. Cabot claimed the lands for the King of England and raised the Venetian and Papal banners as well. Cabot and his men did not encounter any natives, but they found signs of human activity, including the remains of a fire, tools, and fishing nets. You may wonder why Cabot didn't spend more time ashore, and the answer resides in the smallness of his party. This was not a military force. He could land no more than a handful of men, and thus was wary of engaging with the locals. Also, we should note that during all of this, Cabot believed that he had reached Asia, just like Christopher Columbus had done five years earlier when he had landed in the Caribbean. Next, Cabot would sail along the coast for several weeks, exploring the lands and waters. He would report the waters teeming with fish, likely cod. He noted massive pine trees, like those used for the masts of ships. Unfortunately, we don't know the specifics of where he went, but if he thought he was in Asia, he would have likely headed south. That would put him in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, or perhaps Nova Scotia. Again, all speculation. Another important note. During all of these explorations, Cabot said that he did not go ashore other than his initial landfall. So, after a few weeks of scouting things out, Cabot would head back to Europe. On his return voyage, he would first reach the coast of Brittany in France, possibly due to a navigation error. He then returned to Bristol in August of 1497. So Cabot had done it. He had reached the New World. No one had died, the ship was intact, and as noted earlier, he believed he had reached Asia. And he had proved that a voyage across the ocean did not have to be an incredibly long affair. Upon Cabot's return, he was granted an audience with King Henry, who would praise the man and bestow on him an annual pension of 20 pounds, a not insignificant amount of money. At this point, you can imagine the excitement that would have been surrounding Cabot and his discovery. 
The English crown and the Bristol merchants believed they had a passage to the Far East, a shortcut to the Moluccas and China and India. This was gold. The enthusiasm for Cabot is evident in that by early 1498, a new expedition was in the making. This one would be much grander, five ships. And King Henry was so enthused about the expedition, he would authorize funds to outfit one of the vessels himself. So with five ships, Cabot would depart Bristol again in May of 1498. The ships carried with them merchandise to trade, cloth and lace and other items labeled as trifles. The inclusion of such items indicate that the fleet had trade on their minds. Early in the voyage, one of the fleet's ships would be forced to land in Ireland after being caught in a storm. The other four ships went onward, and they would never be heard from again. What exactly happened to Cabot's fleet, we do not really know. There are theories galore, and I will cover a few of them. There is some speculation that the fleet actually returned to England, as a man who was supposed to have been on board one of the ships is recorded to be alive and living in London in 1501. But one living man doesn't make the theory true. In reality, he probably just didn't go on the voyage for some reason, or maybe he ended up on the ship that sailed back to Ireland. Who knows? Historian Alwyn Ruddick, who extensively researched Cabot, as well as the Bristol merchants of the era, claimed to have evidence of Cabot's return in 1501. She believes he sailed down the east coast of North America and into the Caribbean. Sadly, after Ruddick's death in 2005, she ordered all of her documentation destroyed, and no one has been able to reproduce her claims. Perhaps the claim about Cabot reaching the Caribbean comes from a license issued by the Spanish to explore Alonso de Ojeda. It says, quote, Follow that coast which you have discovered, which was the northern coast of Venezuela, which runs east and west, as it appears, because it goes toward the regions where it has been learned that the English were making discoveries. End quote. So, could this reference to the English have been Cabot's fleet? Again, we just don't know. But I would argue that it's a pretty big leap to get a fleet of ships from Newfoundland to Venezuela. Alwyn Ruddick was a respected historian, which is what makes her claim so fascinating, as well as frustrating. For 13 years, she talked about having information that would change our views of this period. But she never published anything, and then with her death, all of the information was destroyed. I mean, why order your research destroyed? The question has confounded historians for years, and there's really no good answer. I don't want to get too much into Ruddick. She has her supporters and critics. But to follow up on her claims, the Cabot Project at the University of Bristol was organized in 2009. They have uncovered interesting information regarding the era, and John Cabot, but nothing that dramatically alters what we know. Perhaps in time they will discover documentation that will shed further light on Cabot's voyages. If you want to know more about the Cabot Project, I suggest you go to explorespodcast.com, and there's a link on there to the site. In the end, the likeliest of scenarios was that Cabot and his ships meant the fate that so many other vessels ran into. Bad weather, scurvy, malnutrition. Or maybe they did reach the Caribbean, and they were destroyed by the Spanish. There are lots and lots of ways for a group of ships to be lost at sea. So, that really wraps up Cabot's voyages and his life. I have to admit, it's a bit anticlimactic. But sometimes, this is just the way things end. Even with the disappearance of Cabot's fleet, the man's first voyage to the New World was a critical moment in history, as it opened up opportunities for others to follow. Within a decade, French and British and Portuguese explorers would be pushing down the St. Lawrence River and exploring the coast of what is now the United States. Many of these expeditions would search for the fabled Northwest Passage, a route through the Americas to the rich lands of the Far East. As for Cabot's family, his son Sebastian would become an explorer. In 1508, he would sail for England to try and find the Northwest Passage. 
Later, he would sail for Spain, during which he would do extensive explorations of the Rio de la Plata. Cabot himself has not been forgotten. His name graces many things all over the world. Streets and schools and even a shopping mall and a golf course. And then there is John Cabot University in Rome. You will find statues of him in Bristol and Newfoundland, and on the 400th anniversary of his voyage in 1897, commemorative towers were built in Bristol and Newfoundland. You can also find replicas of Cabot's ship, Matthew, in both Bristol and Cape Bonavista, which is found in Newfoundland. And a final note. In 1997, to celebrate the 500th anniversary of Cabot's crossing, the Canadian and UK governments designated Cape Bonavista on the east coast of Newfoundland as the official landing place of Cabot. At the time, a replica of Matthew, which had sailed from Bristol, was greeted by members of the Canadian and Italian governments. So that is the life and accomplishments of John Cabot, or Giovanni Cabato. This is not a long podcast due to the incomplete information about Cabot and his journeys, but what he accomplished was an important step in the exploration of North America, and he should not be forgotten. I recommend visiting explorerspodcast.com if you want to learn more about Cabot. There are links to the Cabot Project, as well as some of the historical documents associated with him and his journeys. I also want to encourage you to leave comments or send me your thoughts and ideas using the contact form on the site. Most importantly, go over to iTunes and rate the podcast, or even better, leave your comments there as well. I would appreciate it. Thank you for listening.